as we return our focus to the impact that Calvin's uh, systematizing of Reformed theology had on his world and generations hence, uh, I was looking recently at uh, some survey results uh, about American theology today, and uh, it was you know, as astounding as you may may think it to be that uh, 61 percent of confessing, you know, self-professing Christians uh, believe that God has authority over humans because He created humans. 61% of professing Christians believe that. And, and 59% of professing uh, Christians said that we are created to give God glory and, and to enjoy Him. 59%. The, the numbers go up a little bit when you narrow it down to evangelical Protestants, but still the, the major questions that face today are God's sovereignty is authority and control over everything and who he is the glory that is due him and those are two major things that we see repeated over and over again in Calvin's writings especially in his institutes which there will be a link to um, free versions of that on this week's resources I encourage you to check it out it's it's long so you know maybe look at doing it over the course of a year uh, but sovereignty and the glory of God are two major themes in Calvin's theology and, and also in the whole of Reformed theology. Is that right? That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I think we're on page 8 uh, of your outlines. Page 16. I've got twice as many pages as you do, apparently. Um, but that, uh, that theme of the glory of God is, uh, and the sovereignty of God, those, those themes are very prevalent in Calvin. When he wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which I have in two volumes... Um, he was 27 years old. Um, and the reason he wrote that was to um, try to explain to the king of France and to the French Catholics that were persecuting Christians why these people uh, are so uh, committed to the Christian faith and why they want to withdraw from the Roman Catholic Church. So his whole treatment in the Institutes of the Christian Religion was to, uh, to show to, the, to the, king of, uh, the king of France and also to French Roman Catholics that these people believe something so intensely and they believe it to be biblical Christianity that they're willing to die for it and they're willing to be the objects of persecution uh, in order to affirm it. And so as a 27-year-old um, uh, classical scholar, he... He wrote two volumes, and he patterned the uh, institutes of the Christian religion after the Apostles' Creed. It starts out with God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and the church, which is, is the pattern of the Apostles' Creed. And so he patterned this, this, this defense of biblical Christianity um, against Roman Catholicism as it was expressed and experienced in France uh, along the lines of the Apostles' Creed. And and masterfully uh, really synthesized the theology of the Reformation and uh, finally distilled what, what is it that those of us who want to leave the Catholic Church, what do we really believe about the Christian life? And so, like, like you said, it's long, um, written in another century, and 
all of that, but still uh, profoundly uh, insightful and important in that it, uh, it really uh, set the stage and the tone of, of biblical theology from then on for all of the, the Reformed churches. Um, so it was very, very critical. But uh, Calvin's uh, concept of, of God, his glory, and his sovereignty uh, permeates all of, all of his writings. Um, uh, Piper said, and I think this is on the next, the next page, um, he said, therefore the unifying root of all of Calvin's labors is his passion to display the glory of God in Christ. When he was 30 years old, he described an imaginary scene of himself at the end of his life, giving an account to God. And he said, the thing, O God, at which I chiefly aimed and for which I most diligently labored was that the glory of thy goodness and justice might shine forth conspicuous, that the virtue and the blessings of thy Christ might be fully displayed. And so he, he, he constantly addressed this theme of, of the glory of God, uh, particularly God's glory and sovereignty and salvation. And you're, possibly you're familiar with the, the distillation of, of Calvinism in terms of the tulip. Uh, and all of that is, is just an expression of the fact that, uh, that God sovereignly saves us. And that there's nothing of human effort or human qualification that uh, is inherent in coming into an authentic relationship with God. And so he, he was clear and forceful in articulating that to his own generation and through his writings, through the institutes, through his commentaries, through his sermons, to uh, keep that, uh, that theme uh, before those that, uh, that listened to him and studied him and reflected on, on the things that he wrote. Um, I want to look at uh, his, his view of the nature of Scripture, uh, point B and page 9. Okay. Um, Calvin describes in the Institutes this view, and uh, uh, he's wrestling there with uh, how do we come into a saving knowledge of God through the Scriptures, and his answer is in the famous phrase, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. For example, Piper says, he says, Scripture is ultimately, uh, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. Our Heavenly Father, revealing His majesty in Scripture, lifts reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy. So it's, it's back to that uh, self-authenticating nature of Scripture. You, you simply, as you're exposed to, crypt, to Scripture, it will attest to its own authority by the Holy Spirit uh, convincing your heart that it's true and enabling you to respond to it. Um, and then Piper says, uh, 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 this is the, the key for Calvin, the witness of God to Scripture is the immediate, unassailable, life-giving revelation to our minds of the majesty of God that is manifested in the Scriptures themselves. Um, and then another quote on the next page. Uh, in his early 20s, Calvin experienced immediately the authority of Scripture without appeal to human reasoning. And that's, remember we said it was a sudden 
conversion in his own words. This happened to me uh, suddenly. Um, and so uh, J.I. Packer said, uh, rejecting both the Roman Catholic contention that the scriptures is to, are, uh, is to be received as authoritative on the church's authority and with the idea that scripture can be proved divinely authoritative by rational argument alone, Calvin affirms that scripture, uh, Calvin affirms that scripture is self-authenticating through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what is this inner witness? Not a special quality of experience, nor a new private revelation, nor an existential decision, but it's the work of enlightenment. The Holy Spirit enables our minds to receive the truth of Scripture as absolutely authoritative for our life, uh, apart from reasoning and rationalization, and, and we'll talk about in just a moment uh, the kinds of things that we might uh, feel would be helpful to bring a person to be convinced that Scripture is authoritative. Uh, years ago, Billy Graham said that the Bible is like a lion. You just let it loose. You, you don't, it'll defend itself. Uh, you don't need to, need to do anything. Uh, and, and Calvin was, that was kind of his sense. You just present the truth of God to people and the Holy Spirit does a work in their heart to enable them to believe its authority and to respond to its appeal. Um, that's a challenging view in, in the base, on, on the basis of how we go about Christianity today. And we'll look at a couple of questions at the end of our time that, that kind of bring that out. Um, I guess even in contrast, uh, even there we see that it's a work of God, um, again, looking to God for that grace rather than simply affirming a set of doctrines or signing mm -hmm. on to orthodoxy. It, it's more than a mental assent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it finds you, <clears throat> as you read, obviously, mm -hmm. you have to take that mm -hmm. step. Um, one of the things that I, that I didn't mention is, um, you remember I said that Calvin was in Geneva for about three years and then the city fathers threw him out of the city. Three years later, they invited him back to be the, the pastor of the Reformation in Geneva. The, the last day he preached in Geneva before he was expelled from the city, he preached on a verse. Three years later, when he got back in the city, he ascended his pulpit and he preached on the next verse. <laughs> That, that was Calvin's style. He preached verse by verse, book by ver book, sequentially went through the scriptures because he believed that if you simply explain the scriptures to people, that the weight uh, of the authority of scripture will be self-evident to them and they will respond to it. And so he, that, was his, that was his perspective. And uh, he just went verse by verse Went out of town for three years, came back, and started in the next verse. The next first Sunday he was back in town. And that, that was his style. You know, Christmas, Easter, he rarely varied his text. He just kept preaching. He, did, he didn't have a liturgical year that he was really wedded to. or A lot of that was from his Roman Catholic background and his repulsion by, by that kind of, of liturgy in the church. So he just simply opened his Bible and 
he would explain one verse and the next verse and the next verse and then the next Sunday he'd get up and wherever he left off he'd start again or the next next day during the week when he was preaching. That's quite different from Luther. Mm -hmm. Luther, well, I, I'm assuming mm -hmm. Lutherans are very liturgical. wedded to a liturgical yeah. calendar. Yeah, absolutely. That, that would be one of the great differences that, that Calvin distanced himself from that sense of what was appropriate in worship and in, and how the scriptures were presented to the people. And that was another difference, was it not, between Luther and Calvin. Luther wanted to reform the Catholic Church. Calvin just wanted to reform the church. Mm -hmm. He was interested in reformation in the church, mm -hmm. in the true church. Yeah. yeah. And what we see play out between those uh, distinct denominations, the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and Reformed churches, is that Lutherans follow Luther, they hold to anything that is not forbidden in Scripture, whereas Calvin and Reformed say we only hold to those things which are uh, put forth in Scripture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was, um, the church in, in Geneva, um, he didn't allow art, he didn't allow uh, music, I mean, it was pretty sterile, it was and uh, he just believed that you present God's word and that it authenticates its own relevance and authority and draws people to respond to it. Um, yeah, there's, there's a side of Calvin that uh, was hard to take. He wasn't a very emotional person. He was a little bit cold and, and, and had trouble engaging with people. He was sick most of his life, had, uh, had some very serious illnesses. But his, his preaching... Uh, his sermons were, were, as I said, just sequential, uh, expository preaching. And, of course, there are all, there are all kinds of approaches to preaching. You know, the, there are concepts now, the meta-narrative. You've got to tell the big story and uh, all kinds of different approaches that people take to preaching. But Calvin, because he was so convinced in his own experience that when he was exposed to the truth of God, it immediately seemed to him to be authoritative and relevant over his life. And so he developed a, a conviction that this, this, the, the scriptures didn't need to be bolstered by rational argument, reasoning, uh, that they, they would immediately compel a person to respond to their authority if God was working through the Holy Spirit, uh, illumining their minds and hearts to the truth that they just read. That was, that was his conviction. A um, couple of things in terms of, uh, of preaching I've already mentioned a good bit. Um, Calvin said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence we owe to God because it proceeded from Him alone and has nothing of man mixed with it. Um, and then I gave you that little illustration of Easter Sunday when he left his pulpit and came back three years later and just went to the next verse and started in. Um, some questions that come to me out of a study of Calvin's life and a reflection on his life. And the first one is uh, how God sovereignly and providentially worked in Calvin's life to get Calvin where he needed to be, when he needed to be there. And God worked in, in harmony with his, his temperament and his personality. You remember I said twice, uh, when he wanted to retire to a, a life of leisurely scholarship, uh, 
someone appeared at that moment and challenged him and said, Calvin, if you do that, you're like Jonah, or if you do that, God is gonna, gonna sour that whole process. And his temperament was so sensitive that he was terrified. And, and God used those, those means to keep him where he was and to bring him back to where he needed to be in order to play the role that God had for him to play in, in the development of the Reformation. And so, uh, you know, when y'all studied Augustine, um, Augustine, his daddy, had a plan for Augustine's life. As an 11-year-old boy, his dad said, you're going to study rhetoric. That's what you're going to do. And so Augustine went off, studied rhetoric, excelled at rhetoric, top of his class. Nobody had, had a better grasp of the subject or a better capacity to speak persuasively. And he gets appointed finally to be the professor of rhetoric at the University of Milan. And he goes to church on a Sunday and there's Ambrose, the godly bishop of Milan, Italy, preaching. And, John, and uh, Augustine is compelled by that preaching and ultimately ends up in a garden and hears a voice saying, take up and read. And he picks up some of Paul's letters and goes to Romans. In a Bible study method, I don't recommend anybody. He put his finger down on a verse and uh, felt like God was speaking to him. And he gave his life to Christ. And, you know, the rest was history. But you just see the providence and the sovereignty of God in, in that, whole, that whole series of events. How did God get this 11-year-old boy to Milan, Italy, as a professor of rhetoric, going to a church where a godly bishop preached the gospel? Well, his daddy said, I've got a plan for your life. It's what you're going to do. And he did. And uh, he says, it was an ego trip for me. But you know, uh, the last 40 years of his life in, in North Africa, he debated over 80 heretics. And no one could stand up to Augustine in debate because he was a professor of rhetoric. He knew what it meant to be a persuasive speaker. And... 80 different heretical views he takes on during those last 40 years and compellingly defends the, the essential nature of the gospel of grace. Uh, how did he get to the place where he could do that? You know, most of us, when our daddy determines you're going to be an engineer, you're going to be a doctor, we balk at that. We, we might go through the regiment and actually get the credentials, and then we don't want to be it once we get the credentials. Augustine... You know, he was doing what his daddy told him to do. And uh, God used that just incredibly to prepare him for what he was able to do for the Lord later on. And Calvin was, uh, was kind of like that. He was kicking and screaming every time God was saying, this is where I want you to be. This is what I want you to do. And God used these, these individuals in his life to uh, kind of give him a reality moment and freeze him where he was instead of pursuing that, that life of academic leisure that he envisioned would be the happiest thing he would do. Um, Ricky, I'm wondering if I can get some feedback on you. Sure. Um, looking again at Calvin's personality, he said he was kind of, he, he appeared at times cold. Uh, I've read where he was shy and standoffish. Mm -hmm. And um, many people character, characterize him, and they also project that on the system known by his name as, as Calvinism. Yeah. They, they say that Calvinism is cold, 
it's cold-hearted, uh, it's, it's removed, uh, it's very uh, academic but not engaged. How would you answer either to his personality or the theology uh, mm -hmm. after his namesake? Mm -hmm. um, there's a quote in your notes. Uh, uh, um, by um, I'm missing the name now. By Warfield, who wrote a book on Calvin, um, and he said that he is not aware of any other person in church history who knew God as seriously as John Calvin knew God. Uh, one of the things you find about folks who say that Calvinism is a is a sterile kind of uh, theological system. Uh, and would lead you to believe that if God's going to do it all, you don't need to do anything. Uh, when you study the history of missions, for example, the catalysts to missions are typically deeply reformed people. It, it just doesn't ring out in, in reality and in history that if you are devoted to Calvinism, you're going to be passive. Uh, it's that sense of God sovereignly works to bring me into his family, to, uh, to adopt me into his family, to uh, provide for me um, his very nature deposited in me. It frees me of the, the trauma of having to wonder whether I'm really ever saved or not or can I lose that salvation. Uh, in Calvin's understanding of the Christian life, that was settled. And you were free to go on to love God and to serve him. Uh, it didn't restrict you. It didn't hinder you. It didn't hold you back or make you passive. Uh, and, and the history of, of Christian social action and the history of Christian missions is, in a, in a great way, the history of reformed, the reformed faith as it takes hold in the hearts of people and frees them to pursue God passionately and to serve him with abandon. Rather than the, the criticism would be, it would lead you to be passive and, uh, and, and not intentional. Because if God does it all, you don't have to worry. If he's going to save everyone that he wants to save, why go somewhere and tell them? But people that came to know Christ in the context of a, of a thorough, reformed faith didn't conclude that. They still believed the Great Commission that was a means to God's end, and they engaged in that in significant ways. So. I guess in addition to that, too, I can't remember how much Gonzalez brings this out, um, but just in studying up for, for the session on Calvin, uh, I looked at Philip Schaff from about 100 years ago, mm -hmm. a church historian, and he had page after page after page of quotes from Calvin's contemporaries, and oftentimes his... Catholic counterparts who uh, did not agree with his reformed stance but always kept him as a friend. They, uh, each one over and over again would say that even though he wanted to remain quiet and out of the limelight, that he was very tender-hearted and, and a very good friend, uh, which I think speaks, <clears throat> speaks volumes for him. And we all have weaknesses, but uh, not only did God give him a, a good mind, in a quiet spirit, but he gave him a tender heart as well. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was reading recently a blog by uh, Tim Keller, who has been reading through the institutions for
for some time, and he, he picked it up, and, and there's a system that he uses to go through it in a year. And uh, some of his reflections were that in the four books that make up the institutions of the Christian religion, we think of Calvin as, uh, you know, the big name for uh, predestination. But he doesn't really get to that until book three. Books one and two and leading up to, to book three are all talking about engaging in the exaltation of, of God and the glory of, of Christ. And, and it's not just on a, an ivory tower level, but a very personal, um, almost an emotional, internal, just like we're seeing the, the witness of the Spirit affects him and affects all those who believe that uh, it was not a sterile system. Uh, basically, those caricatures come afterward by people who either don't understand or don't share the, the deep conviction mm-hmm. that, that he and other reformists do. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Absolutely. And a lot of that, I think, is uh, simplistic logic. I mean, theology has always been polemical argument, argumentative. Theologians go at each other, but especially since the Enlightenment, which we will get to uh, in due time, uh, it, the last two, 250 years, our logic, especially Americans, we're reductionists. We always want to reduce things to the most simple um, state. And so it's a very simplistic logic to say, oh, well, if you believe this, then you have to say this. If you believe that God does everything, well, then there's no, nothing for us to do. And again, Calvin, um, who systematized this belief, uh, and it was really in reaction, not reaction, but it was incorrect. It was a corrective to the scholastics and man's ability to find God and seek out God. But Calvin's um, uh, beliefs were... Mm-hmm. I've completely lost my train of thought, so I better not. I better stop right there. Um, when Calvin was in Geneva for the last 25 years of his life, uh, he organized uh, that city, and uh, basically, our governmental system here in America is patterned after what he established in Geneva in the 1500s: uh, a representative government. Um, and what he did in that city, uh, John Knox, uh, 10 years before Calvin died, John Knox came from Scotland and visited Geneva, and he said um, this, uh, Geneva is the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. When, when, he, when John Knox got to Geneva, he, basically he said, I'm almost in heaven, the way that that uh, Calvin has worked out uh, the reality of the Christian life in a, in a cultural and governmental uh, environment. Uh, Knox said, man, I, I just feel like I've almost died and gone to heaven. Is basically what he was saying because of the quality of life that people experienced in Geneva. Uh, Calvin was a great social reformer. He, uh, he did things in that city um, that were, were not done. Uh, prior to him. And so to say that even himself, he wasn't passive on the, on the basis of his theology. He engaged with life. He trained men and sent them out all over Europe as pastors to fuel the Reformation 
all over Europe. He didn't just say, well, God's going to do that so we can hang out here in Geneva and uh, kind of enjoy life here. And he was, he was a great commission guy, even though he was a thorough Calvinist because he was Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a couple of other things, just real quickly. Um, and this, this is fascinating to me. If you take his understanding of the nature of Scripture as self-authenticating, then what do we, what do we make of our desire to, to have apologetics? Uh, you know, in, in the area of, of science, for example, um, the whole field of intelligent design, which is, uh, which is incredibly helpful to talk to, folks who are scientifically minded and try to help them make sense out of a universe that they think is, is just materialistic. It's all, uh, you know, Sagan's say, you know, the universe is and was and always will be. There's nothing else that's ever been, ever is now, or ever will be than just matter, materialism. And we have incredible perspective coming now to, to bolster the authority of, of the biblical uh, presentation of creation by an intelligence. Uh, I'm not sure how Calvin would have, would have greeted that in, in terms of, of all of the, the reasoning and, and the thinking. You know, we take pains to be able to point out and legitimately so the, the integrity of the New Testament documents and, and all the things that we do to, uh, to try to appeal to a secular mind to realize that this, this Christian faith that I have is not irrational. It's, it's not without support. It's, uh, it's compelling in so many ways. And uh, even, you know, living in a postmodern culture, there's a lot of discussion about we have to, have to do pre-evangelism. We, we have to set foundations in place so that people can understand the gospel. Calvin's perspective basically would be tell them the gospel and let the Holy Spirit convince them of the weightiness and the authority of that message and draw them to be able to embrace it and live it out. Um, and so I, I found in studying him and particularly his view of scripture uh, and it, the nature of scripture that it was really challenging to try to think through yeah. how dependent am I on, on these, these processes of reasoning to suggest that scripture is authoritative and do I kind of depend on that rather than just presenting the truth to Don't someone. you think at some level that was, again, he was, a part, he was a, 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 of his day. Augustine's yeah. debates were with heretics. Yeah. But Paul presented the case for Christianity in a way that it could be disproved. Help yourself. Go talk to one of the 500 people that saw Jesus yeah. Yeah. alive. And I, I, I certainly have that check in my spirit that, there's only so much. I, I mean, the older I get, the less burden I am with trying to prove it. I just mm. share it mm. and say, you know, your choice. But well, it's not really their choice, but as far as they are concerned, mm. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to convince them. There's a quote in your notes. I think it's the last one in that section uh, on Calvin's view of Scripture. Um, I think if we were to represent Calvin right, he would say that apologetics is very helpful for Christians once they've come into a relationship with Christ to gain confidence 
in their faith and in the integrity of their faith in the face of science and, and other, uh, other channels of argumentation that would, would try to debunk the faith. And he goes on to say that uh, with someone who's not a believer, uh, that engaging in apologetics, I take him to mean, uh, is not going to carry the day. And I think the, the challenge is that we, we can depend so much on argumentation yeah. to persuade people that they should become a Christian. And I think one thing Calvin is saying to us is, you know, God's word is powerful and persuasive and has its own inherent authority. And uh, don't shrink back from, from exposing people to that truth and, and feeling like you can argue them in to belief and faith. And so the last quote would seem to me that uh, he's not purely saying that none of the other is of any relevance or help or benefit, but I think he is challenging us, he challenges me to, uh, to not feel like I can carry the day because I've marshaled a bunch of arguments, scientific or otherwise, that are compelling. That it really it's, it's God's truth, his word, uh, and it's, it's authority uh, brought to the, to the heart by the Holy Spirit that uh, frees a person to believe the gospel and respond to the truth. And the last question is just for Brad. If he's not an expository preacher, if he doesn't go by verse by verse, and when he takes a vacation, if he doesn't start at the next verse when he gets back, then he's not doing it like Calvin. And, uh, you can't remember what the last verse is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start over in Job on Sunday. <laughs> uh, I know my wife, Annette, every time that I speak, uh, she either says this before I get to wherever I'm going to speak, or she says this afterwards. She says, Ricky, tell stories, particularly men. Their minds get gripped by stories, so I, I have this constant, you know, reminder that, uh, and you know, Jesus was a storyteller, and so what does that mean in light of Calvin's convictions that you just preach the text, you just unpack the the, the verse for someone, and it, it's self-authenticating. Um, again, product of his own day, his own context. There are other things to be said for the style of preaching. Yeah. But I know myself, um, when I listen to a preacher and they announce a text and then um, maybe only in brief passing allude to it and then go on to build biblical principles and truth that are suggested by it, but I leave thinking, I don't, there were a couple of questions in that passage that really bothered me. And they weren't addressed. You know, they, that really puzzled me that the, the text would say that. And now I've got to go home all by myself and figure it out. But uh, the, the presentation of the truth on that Sunday uh, didn't address some things that seemed to me, for example, to be pretty obvious tensions or difficulties. And so I do think Calvin had something of benefit to say that, you know, in, in preaching, we need to allow people to at least go home understanding 
what that passage really addresses rather than a number of great concepts and ideas and truths that are sort of tangential to the passage, but hinted at in it or, I, I don't know. It was Paul style, surely. Mm -hmm. Calvin was a fan of Paul, the Apostle Paul. Most of the New Testament letters are that way. Yeah. A little story. Yeah. Michael Horton points out that even our descriptions of our definitions of theology, they were told in story form. Look at the Apostles' Creed. We're talking, we're given the history. Mm -hmm. Born of a Virgin Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, tried before Pontius Pilate. Mm -hmm. well, Ricky, so the right method is yes. Which is the right method? Yes. <laughs> well, Ricky, you alluded uh, earlier to uh, the acronym TULIP, <clears throat> which uh, is... We can get into how that came about uh, maybe next time we meet, um, but there, it is a small form of a large system of theology, and I've provided for, for you this week a lot of resources to understand some, some preaching and teaching lessons on what those doctrines of grace are. But I'm wondering if there are any other questions with what little remaining time that we have. Do you have either for the life of Calvin or for the impact that he left, the theology that uh, he, he really impacted the Presbyterian Church, Reformed Church, and most of what we would call the, uh, the Western Church? To what extent then would Robbie disagree with Calvin? And isn't that explaining the gospel somewhat in what Robbie does? I mean, it's doing to some extent exactly, I mean, it's explaining to people who may not have a clue, you may disagree totally. Yes, no. You know, I don't know a lot about uh, his theological system. I've read a lot of his <clears throat> apologetic material, but I think that. Uh, Everything I've read would suggest to me that he's reformed in his orientation. I don't see anything that would suggest otherwise. I don't know um, of anything. But I think you, you, were you not suggesting that Calvin would tell you not to do that? You don't need to do that? I, I think he would have hesitated to, uh, to depend as heavily on reasoning and argumentation as, as obviously Zacharias does that and does that brilliantly and persuasively and helpfully. Um, I, think, I think really at the end of the day for me, it's a matter of emphasis. If you do a lot of that and, and very little of presenting the actual textual truth before people, then I would, I would think you're depending on your, your capacity to reason and argue and think over above the self-authenticating authority of Scripture. I don't have the sense that he does that. I think he does present the gospel and talk about the truth of the faith biblically and use the, the apologetic approach to, um, to showcase the integrity and the authority. So I think it's really a matter of how much weight you give to each of those. And Calvin would give most of the weight to the proclamation of the text over the argumentation that might bolster or underpin the authority that's inherent in the text. And I, I don't know that I would say that, that Zacharias does any differently. any differently. He would say that he seeks to remove obstructions from a person's view of the cross. 
So his arguments are more philosophical in nature, you know. He, he was at Harvard or somewhere, and somebody said, how do I know we really exist, that this is really real? And Ravi said, to whom shall I say is asking? And, of course, the place just cracked up. And, but it immediately, it, it, it give, he gives, he, he demonstrates the foolishness of a lot of the philosophical arguments. It, he does more of that than I think he does trying to argue people into. He just says, your way's crazy. Think about, you know, this. But, he, but I don't know that that's any different than... Yeah. Also, in the in what we're we're talking about, um, you know, apologetics versus direct scripture, whatever, um, kind of to me, kind of goes back to uh, in First Corinthians nine, Paul's talking about, you know, to those under the law, I become as under the law; to those not under the law, I become as those not under the law. You know, I become all things to all people. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that you know. Basically, and maybe maybe there are some that are one with the apologetic arguments, maybe not, um, but kind of looking at your audience. Because in this postmodern age, if you start out uh, just straight from the Scripture, most of your lost congregation tunes out after three words. So maybe you, maybe you need the hook of apologetics to catch their attention, to give them enough exposure for the Holy Spirit to have something to work with. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to compare. I think it's difficult to compare the two simply because of the difference in culture. Uh, we look at the, the culture of the 16th century Europe. Everyone was religious, mm-hmm. and the population hungered to hear the Word of God. Whereas apologetics, uh, the apologetics ministry, like Ravi Zacharias, are reaching people, like you said, removing barriers to people who are either apathetic or antagonistic to Scripture and the Christian religion. So uh, what I'm hearing, um, both from our understanding of Calvin and also going back to our understanding of Scripture, is that there is a role for apologetics defending the reasonableness of the faith, but that role should never usurp the role that Scripture has because it's the proclamation of the gospel where the the power of salvation. We owe a great debt uh, of gratitude to John Calvin. And he would, not saying he would be horrified, but he, he, he would never seek that uh, and and it's a it, if you have always had because of what others have said a negative view of Calvin, uh, try to get past that and see the great contribution that this man very humbly made very forcefully too. He when you were talking about it, our system is based on what happened at Geneva. I was thinking, are we going to be able to burn heretics yeah. at the stake? I mean, yeah. because. He did. Calvin did that, but again, it's called, it, it was his day. It was just... In, mm-hmm. Speaking of that day, um, and I may have missed this at the beginning, but just real quickly summarize, what, what were the top two or three, or just two or three of the very important kind of threads of the time and the, the culture 
the place that allowed this contribution to be made through Cal. Like what was going on around him, who was, you know, that just made, it, made him important in that moment. Well, I think one of the things was that uh, he was constantly challenged by a group um, called the Libertines that were resident in, in Geneva. And they were, uh, they were a group of people who were members of the Reformed Church there, but who believed in, uh, particularly in sexual license. And Calvin said, uh, that's fine, but you can't have communion. <laughs> if, and uh, and he, he was persecuted and hounded. And, uh, and the reason he had to leave town the first time was because he said, I'm, I'm not going to serve communion to someone who, who holds a morally loose lifestyle. And so he was, when he knew the truth, he didn't back down. He was tenacious when it came to what the scriptures taught. He recognized it is authoritative and nothing, nothing preempts that authority. And no matter what it cost me, even though the city council at that time was telling him he had to admit those people to communion. He said, well, I'm not serving it. It's not happening in a church that I'm the pastor of. And so one of the things about him is, is just his tenacious um, advocating of biblical truth in the face of pretty horrendous life threats, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, I really appreciate the fact that and he was not a, again, not a healthy man, not a, you know, big, boisterous, kind of a, Luther was the, you know, he was the wild buck, you know, uh, kind of guy. Calvin was, was a scholar, very retiring, uh, very cerebral. Rather but fearful. Boy, but if, and very fearful. Yeah, he, he was terrorized when people told him God was out to get him. But he would not back down when he had a conviction that something was honoring to God and, and to to do otherwise would be dishonoring. Um, he just, that was one thing that really struck me because he had people, influential people, people of, uh, of clout and influence who uh, were trying to, uh, to determine how he was going to pastor that congregation and he simply would not bow to that. There are no other questions. Uh, I did want to point out one more time that uh, the audio and slides and everything that will be put up along with those this week are uh, several resources I'd encourage you to check out um, over the coming weeks and even months dealing with uh, Calvin's life, his writings, and uh, some teaching about the reform uh, system of, of belief. <clears throat> Whereas next time that we meet will be in uh, November 12th, we're going to look at the next stage. We're drawing closer and closer to uh, us. We're moving from the reformers now into the, the next generations after them, where we look at the Puritans and, and other movements during that time, and also the philosophy of enlightenment. You've got a couple chapters there to read. Be sure to engage on the, uh, the discussion board on the Google Groups if, there, if you have additional questions, uh, if you want to start a conversation regarding any of this.
please be sure to utilize that the tool there. And if there are no other comments from the board or audience, Brad, would you like to close us? Father, again, we're thankful for what uh, you reveal to us about yourself. And we recognize, as we have stated many times, that theology is never done in isolation, in a vacuum. Even though uh, Calvin would have liked to have done that, you would not allow him to isolate himself. And I'm certain that his um, participation in the body impacted his understanding of Scripture. And Lord, in the same way, we learn from these great figures in history who uh, have helped our understanding along. And it's almost a luxury to uh, pick apart and, and to criticize this or that, not uh, having the same restrictions uh, and factors to deal with that, that, that they did. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember uh, that anything good that happens in this world uh, happens at your direction, from your hand, it comes from your hand, and the truth and understanding that we have uh, has come from you, but oftentimes through men and women in church history. So thanks for this time together tonight. Thank you for uh, Ricky's um, serious uh, commitment to study, to prepare for us tonight, and all the enlightenment that he has brought uh, to us uh, on the topic of uh, theology in the 16th century and particularly as it is understood uh, as Calvinism today. Uh, so much uh, more our appetites are whetted and we pray that you would help us to pursue truth in the same way mm -hmm. that this man did in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.